0: I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2005. The world is a big place and there is always something to learn about uh, various corners of the globe which might otherwise escape our notice. And sometimes there are those corners of the globe where all kinds of things are in fact are going on which might have some sort of bearing on uh, the lives which you and I live here, here in America. One such corner of the globe uh, which is explored uh, in such a fascinating fashion by author Jeffrey Taylor is that portion of Africa, sometimes called Muslim Black Africa, uh, a portion of of the continent which includes such nations as Mali and Chad. Uh, It's a a part of Africa which uh, is really, uh, in in some respects, uh, an increasingly important player on the world scene and uh, for some reasons which are, 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 a, bit, uh, are, are a bit ominous. And uh, we're going to be talking about this region of the world with Jeffrey Taylor, a correspondent for Atlantic Monthly and uh, a, a contributor to a number of other uh, magazines, and uh, the author of a book called Angry Wind Through Muslim Black Africa by Truck, Bus, Boat, and Camel. This book is published by Houghton Mifflin. And uh, in it, we uh, get a sense of what life is like in this country. And uh, we also follow Jeffrey Taylor as he travels this part of the world. No easy matter in and of itself. Uh, Jeffrey Taylor, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you. I noticed in your biography that you are uh, fluent in Russian, Arabic, French, and modern Greek. Uh, You know a little Spanish, a little Turkish. Uh, And, of course, as we read this book, we certainly get a sense, although... For all the linguistic mastery that you have, uh, that still didn't uh, get you easily out of each and every situation which you confronted in, in, in northern Africa. That's one of the challenges, I suppose, uh, when we start exploring some of these corners of the world.
1: Yeah, well, U.S. politics in the last couple of years have, have made it harder on Westerners traveling in the region, and myself included, and speaking languages means you're able to communicate with people who might otherwise, I suppose, keep quiet. Uh, And when they're getting angry, then they have a way to to get at you and express their their feelings and and their views.
0: We're talking about a region of Africa. Uh, Do we call it the Sahel? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah, the Sahel. S-A-H-E-L. And uh, it is, uh, you call it at one point, the southern shore of the Saharan Sand Sea. I guess this would be what 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 borders the the great Sahara Desert uh to the south. Right. And uh the, the 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 nations of Sudan, Chad, Nigeria, Niger and and Mali. I remember probably one of the first times seeing a map of of Africa and that would be decades ago. I remember being drawn to this part of the continent just by some of these interesting names of these countries, but I have to confess that aside from the names, I I knew really nothing about this part of the world. And uh, I suppose one of the reasons for writing this book is that I'm not alone in my ignorance.
1: Yeah, uh, when I I, de- I decided to write Angry Wind, I was basically um, looking back to an experience I had had in Nigeria in 1997 in Kano in northern Nigeria, which is Muslim Nigeria, and standing atop um, the hill that is the center of the city, which is a vast sort of warren of... Uh, mud huts and and uh, and alleys and looking out from this hill onto these lands, uh, roads that actually led off into the into the haze, uh, leading, to Chale- uh, leading to Chad, leading to Chad, north to Niger, and uh, west to Mali. And at the time, the the names did exactly what they did for you. They they conjured up something, but I I I, I was intrigued by them uh, and. It was September the 11th and the attacks of that day that focused my energy back on that because I knew the they were majority Muslim countries, but they were mysteries to me. And so that's when I decided after September the 11th and before the, the Iraq War to make this trip.
0: Mm. You, yeah. you point out quite rightly, of course, that, that most of these nations, in your words, Uh, Do not appear to affect the West they have uh, they play an absolutely negligible role uh, In in the global economy, but that doesn't mean that uh, That they don't matter to the West in some other ways politically uh, and otherwise And then we have of course another player in this region namely uh, Nigeria which is a very different case and in some respects you say a very troubling case
1: yeah uh Nigeria uh, obviously I think in the last couple of years people with the rise in petrol price uh, oil prices people have seen uh, trouble in Nigeria affecting the gas pumps you know, the price of the pumps here in the United States but more than that, Nigeria is the i think it's the largest African country with hundred and thirty or a hundred and thirty million people um and roughly uh fifty percent of them are are Muslims and they are English-speaking, at least, uh, least pidgin-English-speaking in the majority. Um, and across the, the north of Nigeria, uh, Islamic law has been imposed in the last few years, and the movement is gaining strength now, especially with the, with the invasion of Iraq. Um, but it was already per- pretty strong when I was there in 2002, 2003,
0: you say that uh, although Nigeria certainly has some money compared to some of these other countries because it, it it has resources like oil, that its poorest people are especially poor, and you say also that the corruption there is especially terrible. You you call it one of the most corrupt nations in the world.
1: Yeah, in fact, uh, Transparency International ranked it, I think, as the second most corrupt country in the world, um, but corruption sounds abstract but if you're talking about Nigeria it's very tangible because people know that they have that they have oil uh in their country yet their standard of living ha- has is dropping precipitously uh the annual per capita income 20 years ago was $1000 now it's about $290 wow. they have oil but they don't have uh, gas in their pumps very often uh, fuel is siphoned off uh, and sold on the black market by corrupt officials. Uh, the electricity goes out for half the day. Running water is disappearing. The telephones don't work. Nothing works, and yet the oil revenues keep keep coming in.
0: Mm, and going into someone's pockets. Right, and this is even after the democratic transition they've had. Wow. You say uh, Nigeria is uh, the ground zero of African despair and rage, and, right. and go on to say that we simply cannot afford to ignore what is going on there with its ordinary citizens. Right, right. Uh, A quick word about the name of this book before we probe into some of the specific countries and a little bit more about what this journey for you was like. Uh, We learn a great deal uh, in this book about something called, am I pronouncing it correctly, the Harmattan yeah, Harmaton. The Harmaton. And I think in some ways this is that ang- one side of this angry wind, which is in your title.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's one side. So there is a wind and it blows uh, for days at a time. It roils the sky, turns it brown. Uh, it sort of looks like a brown fog is moving through the landscape. Um, but, of course, the angry part refers to the, the mood in the country and the, the rising mood in the
0: country. We're speaking with Jeffrey Taylor. His book is called Angry Wind Through Muslim Black Africa by Truck, Bus, Boat, uh, and Camel. The first nation which we visit with you is the nation uh, of Chad, which at one point you call a mess of mutually hostile regions united by the French to serve the interests of Paris. This is not an unprecedented story. We can think of other places in the world where an outside power may be rather arbitrarily Drew boundaries and drew together regions that in some respects just don't seem destined to uh, to live together peacefully
1: right, as you know uh in Africa, there are only a couple of countries that actually have national borders um, and uh, Chad is certainly not one of them, and you can tell ta- you can you can basically see that where you have long, straight lines through desert, they were drawn by outside powers interested in dividing up square mileage um in the case of Chad there were roughly four kingdoms that existed in Chad and they were united by the french and there were i think there are dozens of ethnic groups but there's a lot of ethnic hostility and politics is basically the balancing or the the suppression of one ethnic group by another mm. and christianity and islam also
0: play into this you tell a story which is rather entertaining and maddening and, and of course, also very in- instructive uh, on what life can be like in one of these countries. Uh, you tell the story of trying to get a travel permit in order to travel to another part of, of Chad, and this becomes uh, an amazing uh, misadventure uh, in and of itself. Uh, give our listeners some sense of what we're talking about and also the ways in which a a, a story like this is is significant to us understanding a, a country like Chad?
1: Well, when I arrived in Jemena, the capital of Chad, I I planned to stay in Jemena about a week and then move on to Abeshe, which is about 450 miles to the um, to the east. And I, I found out that in fact, even if I I could get on a bus, there was one bus that made the trip. Um, I wouldn't be allowed to leave the leave the confines of the capital without a permit, and the permit I had to get through a ministry set up for that purpose to k- keep watch over foreigners in chad um and in fact the president of the president himself of Chad was informed of my travel plans um through this uh through this ministry and the the clerk who issued the who was going to issue the permit. Or whom I had to approach for the permit was Christian, and my guide or my my driver who helped me out in the week that uh, the first week I spent in Jemena was Muslim, and uh, I, being an Arabic speaker, Arabic is a lingua franca of Chad, um, but it 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 arouses some uh, some some anger among Christians, and I, I really wasn't aware of that until I got into the into the offices of the clerk and realized speaking Arabic wasn't the way to go, that I should speak French. Um, and my guide also seemed to intimidate the clerk and uh, cause him to dig in his heels, and he only very reluctantly issued me the permit.
0: Hmm. I mean, um, and once you're able to finally take uh, this trip uh, uh, on, on a very, very crowded bus, I mean, you also found yourself in, in what you thought were just all but unbearable conditions, but surrounded by uh, by ordinary people from Chad who were uh, squashed into the very same bus and um, seemingly untroubled by these, these terrible conditions.
1: Yeah, I, I I thought I I didn't think I suffered from claustrophobia before, but when I realized that this was going to be it for the next 24 hours, and I, I literally couldn't move. Uh, I was almost in a fetal position on this seat and they had, uh, they had sold every seat and then sold every space from floor to ceiling. So, uh, that's the way I had to ride for, I think it was about
0: 36 hours. And there was a very frightening moment during that trip when the, uh, when the bus is surrounded by men in turbans, they have automatic rifles uh, surrounding the bus and wanting to see people's identification cards. And you said, for the first time since my days in Zaire, I felt the cutting blade of fear that comes with being at the mercy of men living outside the law, beyond restraint. Uh, That really helps us understand just how incredibly frightening a moment has to be like that when you and really everybody in that bus were, were utterly vulnerable to whatever these uh, armed men might be inclined to do to you.
1: Yeah, and what's interesting to note in, in, in this situation and across the Sahel, those armed men living outside the law were the soldiers. They were the army. Hmm. Uh, and very often it's police officers. So the, the greatest threat to travelers in these regions often comes from the men who are supposed to to enforce the law. And that's really the, the gist of uh, why there's so much discontent there. The The police are the thugs, and then there are the thugs also. But um, in this case, the police um, boarded the bus. They shone the flashlight around to find somebody they could extort money from and landed on me. mm and that's why they chose me.
0: <laughs> that had to be so in, in, incredibly uh, frightening, as, as you say, and that's not the only time that you had uh, these moments of of of, uh, of significant fear. Over and over again during these travels, you would come upon citizens who knew the name George W. Bush very, very well and knew something about America and American politics and— uh, Uh, that was a striking thing for me to read, that there was as high a level of awareness uh, as there was among uh, the citizens of some of these uh, countries in the heart of Africa.
1: Yeah, in fact, uh, everybody knows George W. Bush, I think across the world, but um, especially in Muslim countries now. And the more educated people are, the more their hatred toward the United States uh, seems to be growing, and actually, I would say more. Their hatred of the Bush administration seems to be growing. People, as as you read in the book, are able to differentiate between the the United States and and the and the Bush administration. But George Bush arouses people's anger in a way that I, I've never seen anything like it uh, in 22 years of traveling in Muslim countries. There, there is no
0: equivalent. Hmm. On the other hand, there were also these moments when. Uh, I mean, certain moments when you maybe were viewed with suspicion as an American, and other moments where the fact that you were American uh, really inspired uh, great kindness and openness from others, and very, very good treatment.
1: Uh, yeah, I don't think that it was specifically being Amer- American that inspired good treatment or openness, but um, people were generally well disposed towards foreigners. Um, angry about the political situation that is the Bush. Bush's plans to invade Iraq at the time, they were only plans. Um, so, I think that uh, what was always striking was that often people were able to differentiate between the Bush administration and, and, uh, and me. And even though I, I traveled completely on my own, representing only myself, um, in, a, in effect, uh, any traveler is an ambassador for his country. Uh, And yet people were were able to show me kindness very Mm. often. Uh,
0: One of the most interesting places you visit uh, 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 in this journey is uh, a place that you call the largest oasis town on earth, Uh, a very striking settlement uh, right in the midst of the Sahara Desert, it would seem. Tell us a little bit about how this place sprang up and 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 what it was like to to to, to be uh yeah in in this place called uh, is it Faya Largo? Uh, Faya Largo. Largo.
1: Yeah, I think uh in fact it's Faya but they since the French were there they added uh the French second name. Um it, it's probably been there for thousands of years and it, it's the largest oasis in the Sahara. It's just south of Libya uh and uh, surrounded by mountains and uh it's really uh there's probably an, It would be hard to think of a more remoter place on the planet. Um, So the people there are various tribesmen, mostly desert nomads, who uh, traveled at one time, and they still do, in fact, travel across national borders with no no control uh, whatsoever. Um, And they're mining salt, they're taking dates hither and yon out to the tribes even farther in the desert, living by wells, uh, it's probably the most severe landscape you could imagine. And the Libyans invaded the terrain just to the north of that and have since withdrawn. They believed that there were minerals there, and there weren't. Um, but it's and like many places in Chad, beset by rebels, so there are occasional rebel attacks. Uh, in fact, while I was there,
0: there were rebel attacks. One thing you talk about, and I, I think it's so good that you do, is you talk about sort of the unsung heroes that are often behind the scenes uh, when journalists like yourself are moving through the third world and uh, and able to do the work that you do. You say, how many people in my life had helped me at considerable risk to themselves using all their knowledge and talent to travel from one dangerous point on this planet to another uh, beyond Every, almost every foreign correspondence reportage in the third world, there stands a driver, a translator, a fixer. And yet, where are they credited? They are rarely mentioned. And for a good reason, to do so would detract from the glory of the correspondent. Right. Uh, you seek to write to, to that wrong, at least to some extent, by really telling us the story of, of some of these uh, ordinary people uh, who really helped you in, in, in extraordinary ways.
1: Yeah, and and in the case of Chad, in the case of uh, Nigeria, and, and those people pop up throughout the book. They became my friends, and they showed me uh, the towns. And, and if you remember, in uh, Maiduguri in Nigeria, one of my uh, my my Christian guide took me to the Muslim Shehu's palace there, and uh, was threatened, and I was threatened there also. Um, and there, there really is no way to get around it. Nobody is. Uh, In an environment where you're racially different from everybody else, uh, you can't be anonymous, and those who work with you can't be anonymous. And in the case of the last couple of years, with the resentment and hatred for the Bush administration's policies growing, that puts those people at risk when you leave or even while you're there.
0: Hmm. We should mention that one of the points you make is that uh, some of this unrest and some of this uh, disaffection with uh, the United States government, you say, is only going to get worse as more education spreads into the Islamic world. You see, hostility towards the West uh, only increasing, not decreasing.
1: Yeah, because uh, as as people come to understand why they're so poor, uh, people gen- there's a general perception now uh, as to why they're poor. But the but I'm. Two of the main causes are trade barriers and farm subsidies, and as people come to understand that the United States is talking about free trade but at the same time uh, subsidizing its agriculture so that the u s farmers can outsell Malian farmers, for instance, or they simply won't allow certain products into the u s keeping the u s and Western Europe are basically keeping these regions extremely poor and and the more educated people become about this, the more they're able to learn. The angrier they get, and as you saw with certain, especially in Nigeria, where, as we were talking about the corruption, people understand exactly why it's happening. They know exactly how much money their government has, and yet they're some of the poorest people on the planet. Hmm. So education doesn't equal uh, liberty, or doesn't equal positive feelings for the West or the United States.
0: In the midst of this chaos and some of the corruption you saw, uh, at one point you you came across a King James Bible. And you, you tell an interesting story of, of reading through this, not really as, 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 as a believer comforted, as a believer would be, but just comforted in the sense that it, it talks about a world and, and, a, and a principled life uh, that, that you feel like that, like we're all meant to live and, and not the kind of chaotic, corrupt, uh, danger-infested lives that, that you were seeing all around you.
1: Right, and so that was... When reading the book, I could see why Christianity uh, has such an appeal. That was in, in Nigeria. Um, and, in fact, missionaries are operating across, uh, often clandestinely, across the Sahel region. And it makes it makes some sense. Not only is the, the world described in the Bible a, a much more orderly and, and understandable world for them, um, Christianity also sort of offers an in into the Western life, and people think of it, associate it with with wealth in the United States and Europe and immigration and so on.
0: The book again is called Angry Wind Through Muslim Black Africa by Truck, Bus, Boat, and Camel, published by Houghton Mifflin Company and its author Jeffrey Taylor. Jeffrey Taylor, this was a fascinating book, and I'm so glad we got to talk about it today on the morning show. I thank you for the time and I wish you safe travels. Thank
1: you, my pleasure.